Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll look at how Florida began and where it's going with Albert C. Hine, author of Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Form the Sunshine State. At this point in time, no one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, or frequently flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently. We'll talk about airplane flights to smuggle alcohol to Florida during Prohibition. So in 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified and it was put into effect in 1920, which made illegal the production and sale of alcohol in the United States, which of course included Florida. Uh, but a unforeseen consequence was the rise in illegal activity to bring that alcohol into the United States. And we'll discuss 19th century immigration to Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida used to be in Africa. Florida also used to be located at the South Pole. As part of the continent Gondwana 650 million years ago, the foundation of Florida was tucked between the land masses that would become South America and Africa. The rest of Eastern North America was then part of another continent called Laurentia. As the Earth's tectonic plates shifted, the basement rocks of our modern continents moved across the globe. About 300 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia collided, forming the Appalachian Mountains in what would become North America and the Maritonide Mountains in what would eventually be Africa. The Florida portion of Gondwana joined with Laurentia at a line that runs southwest to northeast through modern South Alabama, South Georgia, southern South Carolina, and eastern North Carolina. By about 200 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia had sutured together to form the supercontinent Pangaea. At this point, Florida's basement rock was located north of the equator, much closer to its current position, but was surrounded by land. Florida was near the middle of the Pangaea supercontinent, far from any ocean, probably surrounded by desert. Pangaea did not last long from a geological perspective, breaking up after just 85 million years. The breakup of Pangaea resulted in the creation of Florida as a peninsula. Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida and author of the book Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Form the Sunshine State. The basement rocks underneath our feet right now, probably where we are here in, in southeast Florida, are close to 6,000 meters beneath our feet. Those are crystalline igneous and metamorphic rocks um, that were composed of both the African continent and the South American continent, and, and um, were fused together uh, at one point in time forming a megacontinent called Pangaea. 
that existed for several hundred million years and broke up about 200 million years ago into the uh, continental fragments that we see today. So North America separated from Africa, South America separated from Africa, uh, Europe and Asia did their own thing, India uh, broke away and, and, and slammed into the south side of Asia creating the uh, uh, Himalaya Mountains. And so it was a period of time where there was a significant reorganization of the continental masses on, on Earth. And, and during that time, the uh, basement rocks beneath the Florida Peninsula, created the Florida Peninsula, were isolated and, and, and left alone. And, and then on top of the basement rocks, the limestones have accumulated that we see and, and the rocks that we, and sediments that we see that form our beaches uh, have occurred over the past 200 million years. For tens of millions of years, most of Florida was separated from the rest of North America by the Georgia Channel Seaway. Eventually, the water receded and Florida became a visible extension of North America, but with a distinctly different foundation than the rest of the continent. The Suwannee Basin and the Florida-Bahama blocks that make up the foundation of the Florida Peninsula have much more in common with the rocks of Northwest Africa than with the bedrock of the rest of North America. The Florida Platform is a structurally bounded geologic feature. Um, it, there, there are structural boundaries called faults, and there are uh, different types of faults. The east side of the Florida Platform actually is part of the Bahamas, so it was the Florida and the Bahamas were joined at one time. They've separated uh, uh, since they were uh, first, first created as uh, continental pieces separating from Africa and South America. So there's a large fault there. Um, there is a large fault in North Florida, South Georgia. Uh, it's a different type of fault. There is another fault uh, that defines the western boundary of the Florida platform, and that's a, even a different kind of fault, where the Florida shelf uh, and slope steps off into the deep Gulf of Mexico. It's the escarpment. It's about a 1,500-meter-high escarpment. Drill down, you find that there's actually a fault there. It's inactive. And then south of us, where Cuba is, there's a series of thrust faults. And, and so the Florida basement rocks have been defined as a distinct geologic piece of the crust of the Earth as a result of these different faults. At different points in geologic history, Florida has been totally submerged, but it has also been twice as wide as it is now. Prehistoric animals and probably pre-Columbian people lived on dry land that is now submerged under 200 feet of water in the Gulf of Mexico. Albert Hein. During glacial events, the huge ice sheet, it's called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, uh, covered most of uh, North America. And the Fennel-Scandinavian ice sheet covered most of Europe. And water was extracted from the ocean and, and, and um, snowed on land. And that snow never melted. And so over thousands of years, that snow built up into thick ice sheets. And um, so water was withdrawn from the ocean as much as 400 feet. So sea level dropped about 400 feet, 130 meters. And so uh, as a result, Florida being topographically low and flat, that exposed a huge portion of the Florida platform to the air and became dry. And so we've mapped uh, paleo shorelines out onto the shelf, the shorelines that are, which were at the coastline. There was land, there probably animals and maybe even pre-Columbian people lived out there and uh, it's now 70 meters, 200 feet underwater. Albert C. Hine is also co-author of the book, Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. He says that rising sea levels are an inevitable part of Florida's future. It's a function of global warming and global climate change, but global warming. And, and uh, I realize, scientists realize, of course, it's been politicized. There are a number of things in science that get politicized to our chagrin. 
but the data are real and the models are as best, the predictive models are as best we can possibly make them and they're getting better with time and that's been demonstrated. But all that clearly shows that sea level is going to rise in Florida in time periods that are important to humans, not thousands of years or millions of years, but in decades. And as a result, we have to you know, start to plan how we're going to deal with that. And as we're planning, we, we continue to try to make the science better, try to make the predictions better. And as time goes on, those predictions might change, and therefore our response to those predictions will change. Those predictions are likely to get worse rather than better as time goes on. Many Florida cities are already seeing extreme drainage problems related to rising sea levels. At this point in time, no one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, or frequently flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently, and pretty soon they'll be flooded all the time. And we reach a point where, well, what do we do? And front yards become soggy, and pretty soon they go underwater. What do we do? And, and so there's going to have to be a, a political will, economic will, to deal with that situation. People can't live in situations uh, environments where their front yard is always underwater. It's dangerous, and, and uh, the land isn't worth anything. And, and certainly uh, the flood insurance industry isn't going to provide flood insurance. And so that's just one small example. Uh, those properties will probably have to be consumed by uh, government. The people that live there will have to be compensated, and, and that land will have to be put to other use. Because Florida is mainly flat, with no striking geological features above the surface of the land, people often have the misconception that there's not much to geology in Florida. Albert Hine knows that is not the case. Well, that was my you know, conception when I first came here. People think of geology, and I did too, uh, something in your face like the Grand Canyon you, or, or like Yosemite or the Himalayas or some spectacular, even New England, uh, there's, it's mountainous and, and, uh, or, or the Blue Ridge, uh, uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And, uh, but Florida is low and flat, and so the geology is beneath our feet, and so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But in fact, Florida has got just as interesting a geologic history as any other place, as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps not as spectacular from a scenic point of view as the Grand Canyon. Seeing Grand Canyon is a, a world-class by itself, in my opinion. But nevertheless, the, um, the story of the geologic history of Florida is something you couldn't make up. And it involves collisions with Cuba, it involves drownings, it involves uh, strong currents passing over the Florida platform, uh, huge sharks that were 60 feet long. And, and uh, so Florida has got an amazing, very interesting geologic history, but it's all on the subsurface. And so we have to drill holes and or we use remote sensing, geophysical remote sensing techniques to try to determine what's beneath our feet. From using coquina rock for construction, to using phosphate for agriculture and munitions, to using Florida's many beaches for recreation, people utilize Florida geology in a variety of ways. Geology controls our lives, whether we know it or not, realize it or not. In Florida, we can start with the beaches. That's, those are geologic features, for sure, and, and they have geologic histories. The modern coastal system is about three or 4,000 years old, and so there's a geologic history there. How did it form? What was there before 3,000 years ago? So I would say the beaches are probably the most prominent um, component of Florida's geology that people see. In the middle of the state are phosphate deposits. Phosphate is a mineral, or a mineral family that contains the element P, phosphorus, and that's used in fertilizers. So it's essential in growing food. 
So it's not a strategically important um, geologic commodity like oil and gas or chromium or some of the rare earth elements that we put into computers. But nevertheless, we mine it in Polk County and Hendry County and central peninsular Florida to a significant degree. It, there's about six or 8,000 people involved in the phosphate mining industry. So it, it, it employs a lot of people. And it's a, a product that we export, and so it is a component, I can't tell you to what degree, but a component of the state's economy. Um, just b basic rock, the limestone rock itself is used uh, in cement, and you see it in the facing of, of old banks and buildings. And so we use uh, geologic products uh, almost every day in our lives, we just don't realize it. Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida. He's author of the book Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Form the Sunshine State, and co-author of the book Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch original video, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. If you click on the Join Now button, you can receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Selling whiskey is the greatest sin It 
cause more misery, pain, and woe than any other crime I know. So get out of the way, whiskey seller, for you ruin many of a clever feller. During Prohibition, pilots would leave Miami to pick up illegal liquor in the Bahamas. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, before we talk about airplanes and Prohibition, there's a long tradition of flight in Florida. Yeah, that's right. And when we look at Florida history and the history of transportation, just like the railroads replaced the steamboat, the airplane slowly started to replace the uh, railroad as the primary means of commercial transportation. It was so much easier for people to travel via airplane as the technology progressed into the 20th century, and it also became uh, quite a bit cheaper. Uh, Shortly after the Wright brothers made their historic flight uh, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Uh, designers from all over the world were beginning to test out uh, this new technology. And as early as 1905, uh, there were uh, long-range test flights that were being conducted on uh, Florida's uh, coastal regions, on the east coast of Florida, uh, near present-day Daytona Beach, which you now think of as the birthplace of speed. A number of early test flights were conducted, and uh, again, people would travel from all over the world and bring their designs to uh, take off and land on the flat, sandy beaches of Daytona and Ormond Beach. Uh, As we uh, progress further into the 20th century with the beginning of the uh, First World War and the uh, U.S. involvement in the First World War, as airplane technology progressed, we see more and more training bases spring up. In fact, one of the first naval air stations uh, was started in in Pensacola, and it still operates today. So we see the the technology uh, getting better and better. Airplanes are becoming faster and faster. uh, And more and more civilians, after the end of the First World War, more and more civilians are getting their pilot's licenses. Many of them never even had a license, but they wanted to learn how to fly, and they were coming to Florida uh, to enjoy the, uh, the warm weather and also experiment with float planes and different types of technologies. Now, during Prohibition, some pilots flew airplanes to the Bahamas to illegally bring back liquor to Florida, and of course, flying alcohol into Florida during Prohibition was, was illegal, and not all of these uh, runs were successful. Yeah, that's right. So in 1919, the uh, 18th Amendment was ratified and it was put into effect in 1920, which made illegal the production and sale of alcohol in the United States, which of course included Florida. Uh, but a unforeseen consequence was the rise in illegal activity to bring that alcohol into the United States. Uh, and early on, a number of entrepreneurs, if you will, uh, started running rum from the Bahamas into Florida with uh, boats. They were using sailing ships and uh, would later use fast uh, gas-powered cutters, Uh, but a few of these young uh, pilots decided that the fastest way to get this uh, liquor into the United States was to fly it. Uh, So often they would leave from uh, South Florida, uh, mainly around Miami, Biscayne Bay area, Fort Lauderdale, and fly to West End, which is on the Grand Bahama Island. It it was kind of a known production center for uh, mostly rum, but other liquors as well. They would then fly these small batches back to Florida and hope they didn't get caught. Now, uh, you're right. uh, Oftentimes these short runs would, would end in disaster. Either the planes would experience some kind of technical malfunction, uh, or they were caught by uh, revenuers or the Coast Guard would would catch some of these gentlemen uh, when they were departing or coming back. Uh, So it was a treacherous journey. But we have to understand the times, uh, you know, this is right in the middle of the Great Depression. So a lot of these uh, young people, both men and women, uh, were coming to Florida and they were trying to uh, make enough money really to survive, but they also wanted to fly. So if someone 
offered you $80 rather than the $8 you were getting for to fly tourists around. They gave you $80 cash to run a few cases of liquor from the West End and, and uh, really only expend a couple of hours of your time. For many, the, the risk was, uh, was worth the reward. Uh, but again, often these gentlemen uh, didn't make it back and, and they would uh, be lost somewhere in the Gulf Stream. Um, so it was it, certainly there was a tremendous amount of risk. But uh, if you could make a few runs, you could buy your own airplane and start running your own commercial service. So there was a lot of incentive for these people uh, during the Great Depression. Well, what happened to these pilots after booze became legal again? The amendment was uh, uh, appealed in, in 1933. Prohibition ended, and it, it again became legal to distill and sell liquor in the United States. So a number of these men kind of just faded into the, the pages of history. Uh, but very few of them uh, kept flying. Uh, some of them would go on to fly uh, warplanes during the Second World War, and they would uh, be officially trained by the U.S. government. Uh, but many of them just kind of forgot about their their young, their youthful exploits when flying. Uh, but what we're actually looking at today, an interesting document is a collection, a manuscript that was written by one of these pilots who went on to to work in other businesses around Miami and, and essentially stopped flying. But when he was in his early 20s, he and a, a small group of his high school buddies started running uh, booze back and forth from the West End to, uh, to Miami. They were flying actually from Glenn Curtis Field. Um, and what they would do is uh, when the uh, there were annual air races that were held in Miami. So uh, a lot of these people would come down from all over the country to Miami. And, and there were a lot of people who were interested in, in partaking in, in libations. So in order to get it, they would contact, they would hire these young pilots who were competing in the races. Uh, and they would actually give them an, uh, more money if they could fly it faster. So it became a race in and of itself uh, to bring the liquor back as fast as you could. Uh, but the gentleman we're looking at today are the manuscript we're looking at today was written by Bert Ewing. Again, he went on to uh, be involved in different businesses around Miami, but right around 1960, he decided to uh, put the pen to paper and write down some of these memories. So we have a, a great collection. This is the original handwritten manuscript that he produced in the early 1960s that describes his uh, summer of, of 1928 uh, when he and his buddies flew back and forth. And uh, a few of them ditched in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, both of whom that he describes were, were eventually rescued. Uh, one actually floated in a raft with a, a few supplies, but also all of the uh, the rum that he was trying to get back. He managed to rescue that from the wreckage, was picked up and, and uh, arrested by the Coast Guard shortly after. Uh, but it's a really colorful part of Florida's history that uh, is essentially forgotten today. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. It causes the children's bitter cries And the tears to gush from the mother's eyes It causes them to cry for bread As hungry they are than to bed So get out of the way, you whiskey seller For you ruin a many of a clever color This is Florida Frontiers. Florida is one of the most diverse states in the nation and always has been. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at 19th century immigration. In the big story of the new immigration to America from 1880 to 1915, Florida is a, a small tadpole in the, in, the, in the big pond, as they say. Um, first of all, Florida, you, you have to appreciate Florida is part of the Deep South. Why would immigrants want to come to the Deep South? Uh, First, there's not much industry here. Second, they're competing against African Americans at, at the, the very bottom of the, 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 of the 
socioeconomic ladder. Uh, and thirdly, they're not terribly welcome at all uh, because of religion and, and politics and these things. That was Dr. Gary Mormino, Professor Emeritus at the University of South Florida at St. Petersburg. I sat down with him recently to talk about immigration to Florida. He told me about the city of Key West as the first destination for immigrants soon after the Civil War. If you look at Florida compared to the rest of the South, except for Louisiana, Florida is an, an exception. Uh, it, it, it doesn't rival any northern state in terms of sheer numbers, but compared to the South, more immigrants came to Florida than most southern states. You, you did have some classic immigration communities, uh, Key West most notably in the beginning in 1868 attracted a, a, a huge Cuban community, uh, so much so that, that Key West by I think the 1870s, 1880s is second and even at one time largest community in Florida, largely because of the Cuban immigrants. There's a Gattoville there because of Eduardo Gatto in his cigar factory. Uh, people are calling Key West Cayo Hueso again. Key West soon declined as a destination. Dr. Mormino tells me where the immigrants from Key West eventually went. And many of those immigrants came to Tampa when uh, Don Vicente Martinez Ibor creates his cigar empire, Ibor City, in 1886. What, what's unusual about Ibor City is it, it was larger than the immigrant enclave in, in, in Key West, but also more interesting. It, it had four distinct groups. It had Spaniards. The, the Spaniards were from Asturias and Galicia. You had Cubans, black and white Cubans. Uh, Cubans were the most numerous group. But the, you also had Italians, uh, principally Sicilians. And they, were, they called themselves Latins. Uh, they're not Hispanic. Hispanic is a very modern kind of post-1960s term. So Ybor City, in some ways, is a classic immigrant community. The Cubans, Spanish, and Italians might have come to Florida in the largest numbers, but Dr. Marino reminds us they were not the only groups that came. One of the big differences, though, in Florida, and this would be true of the rest of the South, is immigrant groups here never had to compete with previous established immigrant groups. For instance, when the Puerto Ricans came to New York in the 1940s, they're colliding with Italians who had collided against Jews, who had, who had fought Germans and Irish. So you have these stratified patterns there. But in Tampa, there's really no one there. In fact, Tampa Tribune, I think in 1896, said, we're probably the only community in America that's not celebrating St. Patrick's Day. There's really no Irish here. You, you had some other immigrant communities. The, the Greek enclave in Tarpon Springs is established in 1905. What's exotic about Tarpon Springs is they're sponge fishermen, and they go down with the weighted diving helmets. You had some smaller enclaves in Florida, Slavia, uh, I think in Seminole County, and, and um, I think Oviedo had, had some Slovaks there as well. I interviewed Dr. Gary Mormino and others for the podcast series, the History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.